Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, brought to you by Campaign Magazine. It's your weekly check-in on what's happening in the UK advertising industry. I'm Omar Oaks, media and tech editor at Campaign. Later in this episode, you can hear our creativity and culture editor, Brittany Kiefer, speak to Publicis Group's UK creative practice CEO, Magnus Jaba, and Ali Owen, founder of Brixton Finishing School. They talk about open apprenticeships and opening up the industry to people from disadvantaged backgrounds. But first, I'm glad to be joined by Campaign's Associate Editor, Kate McGee. Hello, Kate. How are you? Hey, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Are you feeling suitably refreshed after your, your week break? We missed you. Oh, thank you very much. Good to hear. Well, um, in these lockdown times, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot to do. But um, I <laughs> I actually went close to the office because I went, I went for a nice day out in Richmond Park, which was the most exciting, and, and looked at the deer and the brook and that's as interesting as it gets when you can't go to pubs and restaurants and cinemas (laughs) (laughs) sounds very wholesome (laughs) let's have a week off and of course i listened to last week's episode where um you had a fantastic conversation i thought genuinely with Maisie and Brittany about um mrs brown's boys versus fleabag this debate over art versus populism in creative advertising um are you are you more fleabag or mrs brown boys that's the thing i want to know Oh, oh, that's a very deep searching question, Omar, to which I don't know if I know the answer. But we have been having lots of fun on uh, the team this week with our um, art editor, Chris, mocking up a scale where you can move something up and down according to whether it's near a Mrs. Brown's voice or near a flea bag. And so we've been having lots of amusing little jokes internally about that. So that's been fun. But um, you missed all the chat because you were obviously off. Is there anything, you know, what do you think about it? I well, I, th- I think it's it's... Time immemorial, to use a cliche, it's, it's, it's a long-running issue from what I understand whether you know you want to be um, popular versus artistic. And um, as Paul Feldwick says, you know, if, you can, if there's a Venn diagram, if you can get both of those circles in the middle, that's the, that's the sweet spot, isn't it? Um, and I think Fleabag is fairly popular as well as being um, smart. But anyway, it's a different conversation. Um, the, one, the one thing I thought, um, it does... In a world where we've got increasing filter bubbles and media audiences are so fragmented, where you know it's it, it feels increasingly difficult to talk about mass reach in the same way, and you know we're doing a lot of events on connected TV, for example, and you speak to the likes of ITV and Channel Four, and you know there is still obviously a huge audience in 2021 for linear TV. There is still going to be big events. We were talking about Harry and Meghan, the ITV uh, interview, the other week, for example. But there is still this fundamental problem of audiences um, might it being difficult to capture mass audiences in general. Um, so I wonder whether that's going to be something that advertisers need to think about as well. well. I think that's a really good point. Does a mass audience exist anymore? Um, and I think it's you know, our media, you're right, is so fragmented. There doesn't seem to be many kind of sort of shared knowledge or you know shared culture anymore. And I think that's I think that's a bad, a bad thing for society generally. But um, yeah, definitely plays into this whole debate about how you should try and target people. I think that that last conversation makes us flea bag people. <laughs> uh, let's let's let, let... Uh, you've outed me, Omar. You've outed me. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just not knowing. Um, let's talk about some advertising, shall we? Um, now, so now we've got an ad by Replins MD, which is our pick of the week. Um, and you've you've written about this, Kate. Um, this is called "Sex Never Gets Old." It's by The Gate. Um, now, this is a healthcare brand which has released an outdoor campaign that shows two elderly people. Um, so I always say it, getting naked and intimate. Um, a red treat for those of us who are having to do morning commutes at this time. Um, Kate, why did you like this so much? Well, this ad won the Transport for London and City Hall's third diversity and advertising competition, um, which this time asked brands to authentically portray people over 55 years old. Uh, the They are kind of black, these black and white posters of older couples, as you say, enjoying intimate moments with their partner. Um, I just I could just see why it won. The posters themselves are really beautifully shot and they have this real emotional warmth to them. Um, they use a range of sort of ethnically and sexually diverse older people. So there's some great casting in it. Um, and I think they're just striking because they're so unlike the way ads usually represent that demographic and um, sort of tackle the sort of taboo tub subject of ageing and sex. I also really like the runner up, which was a poster campaign from Brompton in this competition showing a sort of diverse range of older people with their bikes with the line I'm getting on and I just think they're both really refreshing examples that show you can portray the older generation in kind of better ways 
And I think lots of brands could learn from this. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about dropping out data stereotypes of, you know, various different types of people, you know, and I think this is, ageism is another big topic that needs to be tackled. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, again, to mention Mrs. Brown, getting so much airtime, Mrs. Brown. Um, Mrs. Brown and, you know, Caroline O'Hearn playing Mrs. Merton on BBC, for example. It struck me that um, there's a lot of um, older women characters that aren't actually played by older women. And I, I, I just thought it was interesting. Like, when I, I like you, I saw this, this, this ad and thought it's quite striking to see elderly people portrayed in this way um but maybe it should maybe it, it comes from a legacy of there's just not being o- enough older people in media do you think yeah i think that's a good point I people talk about particularly women in general once you hit a certain age you become invisible um and they're often told that you know the, the invisible generation um i think there was a bit of work done i can't remember now what year I, um but with kind of older models being used and particularly in fashion campaigns um which kind of went down really well. Um, but I think, yeah, generally there's, there's a kind of lack of them. I, actually, I am about to write up a feature where I interviewed the legal and general marketing director for their re- retirement campaigns. And they've done a whole big campaign on um, retiring the retirement stereotypes. And in it, one of the points she made that I thought was really interesting was that there's this actual one older lady that gets used in pretty much every ad for older people. <laughs> I can't remember her name now. Is it Barbara or something? She gets used every single what, the time. The same actress? The same actress. So she's like the go-to person that seems to be the, the person you go to if you want to have an older person in your campaign. Um, and so she was talking about, you know, let, let's try and find, you know, no disrespect to Barbara, but let's try and get some more, um, you know, different people in, in these campaigns because it's not, you know, it's not just this one-dimensional group or person. <laughs> You know, just like in any age bracket. I absolutely love it when I spot the same actor doing different ads. So there's an ad for Domino's where they're kind of the family is deciding what to eat and they just say, Oh, let's just get a Domino's. And the dad is I'm pretty sure he's in that Aviva ad by Adam and Eve that came out a couple of years ago and is really funny and that's why I remember this guy. And I just love I just love that when you when you see the same ad and um obviously um there was a time when Stephen Fry was doing half the voiceovers for advertising in the UK, but that's a different story <laughs> as well. That's really interesting. So when people need the money, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's really interesting about the same actress doing all the um all the all the all the all the old woman character acts, if I could put it that way. Let's find out who she is. I know, that's what I was thinking. Could I can I track her down and interview her? This is uh maybe something i can do for my future get her on the <laughs> podcast uh yeah that's really interesting um replins md created by the gate uh specifically by rob bovington stephen webley and ollie lambert um yeah they want 500 grand with a free advertising space across tfl for this uh that's very good indeed um anything else um catch your eye this week there's a new ad by money supermarkets the money can't bull just saved two hundred pounds ensuring this sweet ride. Now he's as calm as caramel. Uh monster by engine of course um did you see this one godzilla's fighting against um the bull which is like the regular brand character having a fight in a car park did you see that i did see that yep um i'm not racing back to rewatch it i think it's but it's you know it gets its message across quick to, quickly and effectively and it's vaguely amusing but um no disrespect to engine but i still don't haven't forgiven money supermarket for splitting with mother after their brilliant epic strut and builder which were really funny and memorable have they fit that sweet pot being popular and uh, and funny? I don't know. That epic strut was an epic campaign, wasn't it? This sounds entirely disrespectful to start talking about another ad campaign. But you just reminded me, I think it was when I first started campaign. I've been here for five, six years, something like that. And um, we were doing, um, I can't remember where it was exactly, but the <laughs> mother got someone dressed up as one of the epic strut characters you must have been in the office for this where they got someone to come into our office it was a man dressed in high heels and you know the beard and everything yes. do you remember this well, and it this is funny because i actually watched this it was marketing interviewed him between in 2015 and he was in our old office strutting around the office and i, I think you might have been there i think there are a few other people on the team that were there and you can see the kind of embarrassed looks as he sort of struts around the office yeah um see this is the wonderful things that ad agencies do there's not just wonderful tv ads they they have the the wit and the charm to do to send people around your office um 
doing things like that as well in high heels <laughs> twerking and this we remember it's six years on so indeed it was very indeed. memorable <laughs> um this current ad is of course money supermarket by engine which created this ad monster as part of the money calm um, brand positioning that they launched last summer god was it that long ago um okay um let's move on to now it's interesting because um we're all thinking about reopening as the weather gets a bit better lockdown ending coming back to the office perhaps and um, we had news from reach uh, the publisher of the daily mirror of course formerly trinity mirror um it announced last week that it would significantly start downscaling its uk office space including giving up two floors at its canary wharf hq um I suppose in some ways, Kate, this isn't so surprising that a media organisation uh, is looking to perhaps cut costs, um, respond to what they say is an employee poll on working preferences. A lot of people enjoy working from home. Um, we had a question piece on our sites on Wednesday morning, um, campaignlive.co.uk. We've got a range of media owners giving their view on this, uh, the likes of News UK, Facebook, Hearst, for example. Um what, what do you think, Kate, um, as we enter the, the this semi-new world of post-lockdown? Is this something we're going to increasingly see from media organisations and ad agencies, I suppose? It's a very good question. I mean, I, I think, I guess this is the big the big question at the moment, isn't it? Is what is the new office going to look like? Is it going to be much bigger? Is it not? I mean, our employer has, also, has got rid of one of our offices, um, so they've already made that decision. And I, 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 so I'd, be in, I'd just be really interested to see what happens with this, because as you say, some people absolutely love working from home. And I think there's a, it's given lots of people, you know, work-life balance that they may not have had previously. You know, there's lots of positives, you know, not having to do the commute. And um, I think if you're, if you fall on the introverted spectrum, perhaps, or if, you know, you'd have to do a lot of deep work in your work, working from home is brilliant because you don't get interrupted as much and you get that time to, you know, actually get through things you could be more productive you're in more control of your own time there's sort of lots of positives of working from home but i can also see the argument that the office particularly for a creative industry is really important too because you know they, a lot of talk about creativity is sort of serendipity and how important that is to it you know meeting people different people that you might not work with necessarily in your team just you know when you come in in the morning or if you're making a cup of coffee in the tea room and you start chat chatting to people and those things those kind of little small conversations can have these big impacts on you know what you're thinking and your ideas and stuff and I think you kind of miss that and I think you also miss just those casual chats with your colleagues that you know I think having to schedule a, a zoom call to chat doesn't kind of breed the same relaxed environment where you can you know talk about ideas you always feel like you're on the clock and that you might be getting in somebody's way and and I think weirdly enough working from home kind of generates its own digital digital presenteeism I mean when I was working in the office I'd often just shut off my emails and calls and I would sit down and you know write a feature and everyone could see that I was writing a feature and I felt no guilt about that but I think when you're at home if I did that now I just would feel like people might think that I'm you know lying on my sofa watching tv or skiving somehow and I, I think that um that i just get the impression that's also what other people feel like too and this is why these work days are kind of being extended and you know there's more pressure to feel like you're being responsive so i think that's that's sort of definitely a downside i mean what what do you think omar are you an office lover <laughs> an office lover um <laughs> i i i used to uh, work i pretty much before the lockdown i found that I was working from home one maybe two days a week anyway just because I got into a rhythm where I could plan to when if I needed to write a feature as you say it's it's a good thing to do and you're at home no distractions etc and because people knew I was doing that I was upfront about it I didn't feel them that I didn't feel that same pre presenteeism urge as you describe I mean I just sorry just to interject it's not like anybody on the team has ever said that and I'm sure they would you know I'm not feeling that from the team people it's just a personal thing that I'm imagining other people might as well no for sure and you can you know i i know that um you, there's a tendency for people when they're working from home and others aren't to leave their email open and to, to be really hot on email just to show that you're around and available and etc and i i think i think that's bad i don't think i think people should particularly as we're all working from home people need to get off email as much as possible but anyway personal view um my general view on this is I think the problem we have is because even though this lockdown seems to have gone on forever We've always known that it's going to be temporary. We've always known we're going to come back to whatever normal is at some point. And so I think the problem is, is that no one really that I've talked to about this in the industry is really face up to, OK, if there's going to be hybrid working, some people working from home, some people in the office going forward. 
what is going to be the new way of doing things? Because it seems like everything that we're doing, whether it's Zoom calls, etc., is kind of we're trying to almost bootstrap the digital behaviors onto how we want to recreate the office. Um, and I think that's that's almost getting into the worst of both worlds. So, for example, you know, I still hear about um, agencies doing all hands meetings, for example, with, you know, 200 people on a Zoom call because you can do that on Zoom. It's like, What is the point of that? I I don't understand that meetings are supposed to be interactive. And why do you why is it necessary to turn up at a certain point for something like that? I, and the same thing about um, we were just talking about emails as well. This culture about having to be quick on email, almost using it as instant messaging. It can be incredibly stressful, actually, if you need if you're away from your email or something urgent has happened. And I think um, lots of things need to be rethought um, because as I think, unfortunately, we've learned from previous pandemics, such as the, the Spanish flu, is that once the thing's actually over, as serious as it was, behaviour tends to go back to exactly how it was before. And I predict, I predict, and you can hold me to this, is that um, come November, let's say, it's going to be exactly how it was, albeit with people still wearing masks on public transport. Yeah, I definitely think there's probably lots of pent up demand and desire to kind of get back out there and see people and I think even just conversations you're right I think most people feel like at some point they will be going back to the office so I don't think I don't think many people think oh I'm just going to be working from home now forever that's just it I think yeah there'll be this sort of hybrid approach I think with the all meeting thing I think that's an interesting point but I also feel like it's much harder now to communicate with staff and I feel like if you were sitting in an office there would be little kind of conversations that might be happening that you would just kind of pick up on just by osmosis, that you would just be around and you would just kind of, you'd kind of just get a general sense and a feel of what's happening, even if you're not necessarily involved in something. Whereas now all those conversations happen privately. I feel like sometimes these big things happen and you might not necessarily know about them or you kind of, you weren't there for this bit and people kind of forget that people just don't generally find out about things. And so I can see why these kind of all big group meetings good just to deliver a message to everybody at the same time so no one feels left out but yeah equally as a as you say zoom meetings are not necessarily the way forward on everything (laughs) certainly doesn't replace the in in office experience i just think it needs to be rethought because um i guess some people are really expert using slack perhaps and they've cracked this and if and if you're out there and you do i'd love to hear about it but as you say these the you know just having a chat whilst you're working us all of us sitting in an open plan office looking at each other and you know did you watch fleabag yeah. the other night or did you watch mrs brown's boys the other night <laughs> the line of duty the line of duty did, oh line of duty is the new one yeah i'm supposed to talk about that uh, yet another tv show i'm not actually watching but uh, um you know just kind of it that it's not just about agency culture it's just about we're all bloody human beings and we just want to talk to each other and be human and we're not robots and it's you know uh, that's that's what underpins all of this um so yeah i i don't think it's been rethought because we haven't felt like we've had to but that might be a longer term cultural thing we shall see if you've been working with people for a long time like i think us as a team we've worked with with each other for quite a long time so you kind of know each other quite well and you know you know how people work and you kind of you have that relationship that sort of already exists but i think if you're a new person coming into it you don't have that relationship to fall back on so i think it'd be much more difficult to kind of create these new relationships just over zoom when you've only met somebody on a kind of small screen with you know dubious web quality pictures um so i think that could probably have a big impact on how you feel about things depending on your personal you know um how long, how long you've been at a company for and how, how well you know the people yeah i always think about um younger staff as well and you know we did a podcast um, with snapchat about this very issue in january i think it was and you know if as you say kate if you're a new starter, if you don't have that experience, you don't have that confidence, it's just very difficult to speak up for, you know, when you disagree about something in a Zoom call in front of everyone. Um, yeah, exactly. And just, you yeah. know, just having the confidence to do things independently when working from home, frankly, you have to do a lot of that. It's just very difficult. Um, yeah. Or feeling like what you've got to say is so important that you've got to set up a whole new meeting with a manager to say something that's actually just a small point. So I think there's probably a lot of things that you're not sharing with people um, and that and that is not that's not good in the long run yeah um so that one is going to run and run and run we'll come back to that um let's talk about the gaming summit that we had last week um last week campaign held its first 
Campaign Gaming Summit, um, which presented delegates with original insight into how gaming and esports can successfully interact with brands and advertising. Um, so it's the first one we did. Um, I, I think I'm allowed to say that it did bet- even better than we thought it would do. Um, unfortunately, I was away last week. So as a, as a the tech editor, I was most disappointed. Um, Kate, you, you were there. You, you hosted a panel, didn't you? You were watching lots of things. Um, tell me what happened. Yeah, it was a really interesting thing. I mean, you've already written some great pieces on this space, I Mark. Oh, shucks. <laughs> oh, me? Little of me? Um, but I think there were some really interesting takeaways from it. Um, and one that, these are just my personal takeaways, but one was just the sheer scale and size of the gaming universe was just really interesting um, to me. It's obviously been a rare beneficiary of COVID uh, with the increased amount of time we've all spent at home during lockdown. Um, I think this was a stat from your feature, actually, which was according to the Entertainment Retailers Association, the UK video game industry was worth £4.2 billion last year, which is a 15% increase year on year. So, um, And it's a real growth area. And that's bigger than like music and movies combined. I think I'm right in saying yeah. it's huge. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so it's, it's massive. And I think that the, the sort of old idea of gamers being sort of teenage boys in their basements is no longer accurate, if, you know, if it ever was. Um, there's a huge, huge range of ages. The market is actually 50-50, male, female. Um, and I think what was interesting is they're they kind of defining the gaming market very differently. So I think there's probably a lot of people that um, play games that wouldn't cons- consider themselves to be gamers but they were being considered in that gaming universe. And that's people on their mobile phones playing Sudoku or Candy Crush. Um, so it's a kind of, and mobile, mobile phones seems to be one of the big growth areas for games. And that seems to be a way in for a lot of people. So it's quite inter- interesting that that universe is much bigger than I think a lot of people within it would even realize. Um, second point, historically brands have tended to overlook gaming as a marketing channel. And I think there's been a kind of slight snobbery around it. And I was quite struck by a question we had in the first session from one of the, the um, delegates who, was, who said that she was met with smirks from their, her colleagues when she mentioned she was attending the event. And I just wondered how common that was, you know, it um, probably depends on the sector that you're working in, but it certainly shows us a degree of challenge in overcoming outdated attitudes towards gaming. Um, third point, I was just impressed by the sheer creative potential for brands. You know, it's a blank canvas. There's an increasingly cross-pollination between music, film, gaming, you're seeing music concerts, real billboard ads, you know, Hollywood actors getting involved. And I think that just means anything you can do in the real world, you can now more or less do within a game universe, but without the usual tedious constraints of reality. So, you know, there are big creative possibilities, which should be interesting for anybody in the creative industries. And then the last point I think that came across was just the sensitivities required by brands to get it right. And these are, it's not just the, you know, the, the gaming, the gaming universe is split up into all these very nuanced, different, disparate communities um and the head of communications george osborne um for the the association of uk interactive entertainment which is the trade body for games the head of communications for that body called george osborne um said that actually the biggest risk marketers should be aware of is getting their execution wrong as gamers can be extremely unforgiving and doing something badly for example, by misunderstanding the culture of a particular community or making your advertising overly intrusive could have disastrous consequences to the reputation of your brand. Um, and in one of the first sessions, a Daily Mail games critic, Peter Hoskins, said that, you know, once your brand is in a game, you don't have much control over what happens to it. So, you know, people can shoot at it and deface it. It's, it's the gamer's space. Um, and during the roundtable I hosted, it was interesting to hear the marketer saying just how carefully they were taking this. And so, I mean, that's a good lesson for, mar- for every marketer in every you know space not necessarily just gaming but you know the, the key point being don't interrupt the experience try and enhance it in some way and also think very carefully about you know where you're going to go because there are lots of nuances and you need to put the work in to get it right yeah absolutely um and it's interesting because I, I first wrote a feature about this in the summer of 2019 and again for the most recent magazine which is march 2021 and it's interesting to see the evolution of the conversation at that time because a year and a half ago, <laughs> um, so I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but um, somebody was depicting the gaming gaming industry as the Beverly Hillbillies of media, where they were just seen <laughs> as like this kind of like cr- bunch of cranks who, um, you know, obviously were very popular with some people, as you say, boys in their bedrooms, whatever, um, but weren't really taken seriously, weren't written about in, um, you know, as uh, like the arts in certain broadsheet newspapers and all the rest of it. But that perception has definitely changed within two years, obviously fueled by the pandemic and everyone being at home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned smartphones, um, lots of lots more women playing games on smartphones nowadays. Um, however, what does remain 
and there's a big challenge for marketers um you touched on the brand safety issue which from what i understand is is the number one concern of marketers who aren't really okay with gaming marketing um there's only a handful of brands that are i mean kfc for example is has been for a few years now really big on games and is doing really well in that space but there aren't that many brands um that are kind of can really have point to a body of work in this space um but also just the fact that to your point about gaming being so big you have to understand that advertisers are actually the junior partner in this relationship absolutely and in terms of get in terms of getting it wrong it's not just about getting it wrong on the creative on the execution front with the gamers it's also getting it wrong with the gamers the gaming companies as media owners so the inspiration for this feature i mean it wasn't just about this gaming summit it's the fact that all these um these major advertising companies such as publicis dentsu wpp for a while actually wpp um gravity roads uh you part of um, you mr jones they've all launched these specialist gaming divisions now so they're really taking it seriously and funnily enough um for the gaming summit i actually had um i won't say who it was that, would, that wouldn't be fair but it was a major major uk advertiser um one of their marketers emailed me to say um about the gaming summit and they said we're really interested in this but we have no idea what we're doing and so a lot of brands are waking up to this but number one, first concern is brand safety. Number two, you're actually dealing with people, multinational companies who are going to need to get sign off from Tokyo or somewhere in the US, for example. And it's not just about getting it right with consumers. It's getting right with those companies as well. Um, and just final point, the tech has moved on a lot, even in a couple of years. So in the pragmatic space, and when I say programmatic, I'm not just talking about these um for the most part crappy online ads that are served you know and targeting people online and you do get those in particularly the smartphone games in app games but you're increasingly getting these programmatic uh ads in um these um the, the sexier console games so for example um racing games you can now programmatically buy you know digital billboards that are you know go the cars driving down the racetrack and these billboards you can now do ads that are targeted towards certain people depending on audience because these games are they're networked they're they're online on the xbox or whatever so the technology is improving there are lots more opportunities and yeah I'm, i'm sorry i wasn't at this summit last week but yeah i can imagine really really interesting Okay, Kate, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Um, Thanks so much for coming on again this week. Um, And now we're going to throw to our interview. Well, not my interview, not our interview, but um, Brittany's interview with Magnus Jarba and Ali Owen. Hi everyone, I'm Brittany Kiefer, the Creativity and Culture Editor at Campaign, and today I'm here with Magnus Java, the Chief Executive of the Creative Practice at Publicist Group UK, and Ali Owen, founder of Brixton Finishing School and Ad Academy. Now, we know from lots of coverage and discussion that advertising is a notoriously closed-off industry with a diversity problem. Magnus recently said, ours is an industry that is closed an industry full of people who look the same, have similar backgrounds, and often upbringing. Now, since last year, when the industry's diversity came under greater scrutiny with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, there have been some more attempts to change this. Magnus and Ali are both passionate about this issue, and they're part of different efforts to open up the industry. So I thought we could just start by hearing from both of you how you got in, into the industry. Um, Magnus, what, what's your story? How did you even find out about advertising? So my story is, um, I mean, I was really fortunate in the uh, 80s, there was um, a government scheme called an assisted place. So uh, if you pass an exam, the government paid uh, for your education if you get into certain schools. It, it was actually never used up. I was from, um, not many miles where I live now, but in a place, a place called Harlesden and Stonebridge. There weren't a lot of... Uh, private schools in their area but the government paid for my education which was fantastic I'm very grateful for it what it meant is when I went I'm trying to find something to do as a living the thing I did know is I was I'd been selling timeshare holidays at some point over the telephone to try and get some money to go on a holiday and and Mm -hmm. having done that I worked I like talking to people I knew that bit and I started looking into advertising and it started sounding interesting sounding interesting but luckily for me I then went to Asked people from my old school if anyone knew someone. Someone found someone. Found someone for me to meet, and we had a, we caught up. I really liked them. Really, really liked them. They told me all about the industry. Fantastic. It's one of those things where I had a drink, 
and I wanted to have another drink. And that made me think that's the right industry, therefore, to be it. And through that, I managed to get myself some work experience in mm. agencies. Now, actually, sits in my world is, is now as art was IMP at the time. I was getting re- comic relief red noses delivered to Texaco garages. So I was calling them up to check they had they knew they had their red noses and what to do. But but I I, I tell I say that story because from doing that, I actually got offered a job, and then after that, I got myself a graduate job at Okabin Mather. But it was, um, I mean, all of that is just luck, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the problem with it is it's, um, it's the right place at the right time. And there's no outreach mm-hmm. that I was part of. I just was fortunate to be around the right people. Okay, that's interesting. What about you, Ali? Was it a similar experience of like you were just in the right place at the right time? I think, yeah, I really agree with Magnus's. I didn't have no anybody in advertising. I'd never heard of it. But when I arrived in London, I could type. So every morning I'd turn up in my very, very cheap, but prop my my suit jacket, basically, I'd got from a second-hand shop. (laughs) And I'd sit on this little wooden bench in Office Angels waiting to be whisked off to a temping job somewhere. And about on my second week of this, you know, temping career, I rocked up at Marketing Week for the day. Yeah. And the publisher in Marketing Week was a very glamorous lady and she had a thing called a pashmina. She kept swinging round her and I thought, wow, look at her. I just really want to be her. <laughs> and then being me and being a bit tenacious, when I was given an opportunity, I tended to go for it. I managed to, by the next week, be well, get a job as somebody else's PA in that company. And then very quickly I learned the ad sales table, uh, more money than me, which I found quite, you know, I wanted a bit of that. So I um, arranged well. I had a chat and about a couple of months later I was on the ad sales table and that was the start of my career. But I wonder what would have happened if in that sliding doors moment Mm. I'd been sent off to some, you know, another destination. I just never would have found it. It was pure luck. And that's why I think to me that's the challenge, isn't it? It's the, it's luck can't be a, the industry's letting itself down if luck is our, um, the talent strategy. Hmm. I know this is a big question, but what are some of the factors that you think make it um, more closed off? <laughs> it's going to sound like a really obvious answer, but you can't, it, it's opaque. You can't see in it. We don't, um, when have we allowed people to see what we do? Um, who understands what we do? It's different if, um, and also depending on where you come from and a different background you've got, you might find that, um, Taking a risk, let's call it, and some people have to take a risk to do certain things, to leave home, to be with us. Taking a risk to go, I'm going to be do certain professions that you understand, your parents understand, your community understands. It's a different thing. When when we've never allowed anyone in, there is still like dark arts. Mm-hmm. It is, here we are, whatever it is, 20, I don't know, five odd years in. My mother still has no idea what I do. I mean, I mean, <laughs> today, because we don't. It, we try and we believe there's mystery in it and we keep it covered. It's mm. like we're a silo. And I, and I always go, this, like, si- like a silo in the world. And if you think about it as a silo is an agricultural term for like keeping things separate. And they go, so, so they don't contaminate each other. Yeah. But why would we, the industry, want to be separated out from culture? I completely agree with you, Magnus. I think it's a bit like a members club. Yeah. I always have this thing where it's like a members club and if it had like a school tie, it would have like a bottle of rosé or something as its insignia. This is my (laughs) big thing at the moment. Um, I mean, I'm amazed. So Debbie and the IPA, Debbie's like the careers app, did some research on graduates. So people who'd actually kind of taken a risk, they'd gone to uni. So clearly the more, you know, they'd taken a risk or they'd been more advantaged. Um, like 26% of graduates said they didn't think there was any money in advertising. Now, as somebody who's always been driven very much by needing money, I was shocked that one in four people didn't even realise this was an elite profession you could get paid. And then the majority of them, I think it was nearly 85%, couldn't name an ad, ad agency. Or, you know, they had they had an idea they existed. In fact, such and such is one of the few, I think, tiny, like 4% could name. But I just think it's appalling. As an industry that sells things to people, we don't sell ourselves to essentially our biggest stakeholder, which is our consumers. But without our consumers' involvement and imbuing their lived experience, how can we possibly create the work we need to create to create outstanding results for our clients? Right. Brittany, you will remember, I remember you you guys um, very thankfully asked me to speak at um, Cambay Big Awards. Yeah. 
showed uh, and you had a, the school report and you had a you had a what looked like a school photo yeah shot in east london mm-hmm. and if you remember i sort of took uh, i shared a picture of that school photo and then shared a picture of some other school photos mm-hmm. in east london and they don't look very similar do they no they don't and we've got what are we at Thir- we're about 13 14 percent uh for ethnic minorities in our industry yet we've got an industry in places that literally is domiciled in places like east london uh, that's not to say that that everybody should be from East London. We've got to then beyond London is there another is a big question for us uh, to look at. But you, you 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 stare at that and you are left. My thing is regret on both sides, and, and that's why for me the most important thing about this conversation, this debate, is it's not just an ethical thing, it could, and it is an ethical thing, but 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 it's a it's genuinely a it's a business thing it is it is the um are we get paid to come up with new and brilliant solutions for a changing world and if we don't find new and brilliant changing people i'm not sure sure how we can do that we've we've spent and invested a hell of a lot of money and time and effort in brilliant new capabilities in the industry and rightly so because the industry needs and needed to modernize and, and we need to get ahead of the curve but we have underinvested in the most important of all the capabilities and that's people so that that brings us to publicist group recently announced a new platform called the open apprenticeship and it has pretty ambitious goals but the whole idea behind it is trying to open the industry up to more diverse wider pool of talent. So Magnus, could you tell us a bit about what that is and the genesis of it and what you want to see it do? I mean, it, it, it isn't exactly that is first of all, like, how do we allow people to see in? That was, the, that's why it's got the word open is how could you see it um, and allow talented people to see in from different ages and different backgrounds, but also to seeing it means understanding and seeing, and if you go through it, there are different modules that sort of help you to understand the different elements of what we do and understand the industry, but also do what I did. So if you don't have, if you didn't go to the right school and have someone to connect with, there are people there to connect with because um, that level of menteeship, I actually think both ways, <laughs> is, is, crit- is critical for us. Mm-hmm. But also, most importantly, is everybody wants to do something where they think they may have a value. I said that we want. We also all any. All I remember as a young person is, is I want. I want to have a value on the world and leave a mark and imprint, and you just want the opportunity to do that. And so, what's key to open apprenticeship is beyond the modules that you go through, and beyond the connections that you can do, is is that there are live briefs on the likes of McDonald's and Marriott to work on because it gives you the opportunity to see what you can do and make a difference and to see if this might be a thing for you. Uh, which I think is what's key with that is it means some of these things can see that they're talking down to someone versus with someone. And that is like, because these briefs are open because the clients the clients are up, who are offering up is because they think and believe we can get some new and different brilliant answers from people. So that... That's important. And I think the last thing for me about the Open Apprenticeship that's key is, I mean, you, you've talked about it as the publicist group has announced and launched the Open Apprenticeship. We started here because, and we have lots of work to do to fix ourselves, but we wanted to make sure we, we invested time on the industry. Because, I mean, we, we're, the way we, we've looked at it is to break the challenges into three parts. There's, we need to inspire people to come into the industry. Then we need to enable them to get a foothold. And the third thing we need to do is make sure they can progress. So there, and this inspire this is part of the inspire piece for us, and it's not ours as far as we're concerned. We just started it; it's everybody's, and that's why Ali's involved in it because this isn't. Um, we need collective action. Um, Ali, could you talk about why you think something like this is important, but then also tell us about what you're doing through Brooks and Finishing School and the Ad Academy? I think it's brilliant that people are taking actual direct action and making change. I think last year we saw a lot of speaking about things so I'm always going there's some doing going on I do like a good bit of doing bit of action (laughs) rather than chatting um so for me it's exactly the kind of thing we love I mean obviously we do a similar thing at a slightly deeper level and scale but we feed the open apprenticeship and also those who experience the open apprenticeship can come back to us and experience more so it's part of these building blocks which we're all building together you know, with publicists being part of this, 
where we're actually coming up with a, a kind of wholesale change. I don't think we're in a position where any single organisation can actually do the systemic change we need. This is a system that needs completely rewriting and rewiring. I think what's exciting for me and what keeps me going is the fact we're starting to put these jigsaw pieces together where all of us are going, right, oh yeah, let's see how that fits together. Let's see how this ecosystem works. Let's see how that end user, which is essentially a talent that's been underserved, his potential is being threatened by the current system we've got. How can we draw them in? What it does do is it's signposted within our new national course called the Ad Academy. So way back last April, and this bit, sadly, pretty much where I'm sat now, because I've not really moved in 12 months, um, (laughs) I sort of read a piece on social mobility in The Guardian that talks about the decimation of young futures, which has obviously only got worse since. Um, But that was about the fact that two-thirds of work experience had been cancelled two-thirds of graduate jobs had gone and that was at the beginning of the plague not actually now where things are really really bad and the majority of unemployed are those under 25. Um, so we we use the kind of digital opportunity very much like the open apprenticeship and that's why they fit so well together to create a nationwide digital gateway into the industry so it's an eight-week course it's about I think we've got about 60 hours so far that the industry's contributed plugged up into five sections, takes you through the history of advertising, which Saatchi and Saatchi have contributed to, doesn't sugarcoat our DNI challenges or the fact, you know, the talents that go through are going to be pioneers. Lots of amazing trailblazers in there, so you see your role models. Then we massively unpack all the roles, um, and that's about 30 hours worth of content with exercises and additional learning. And through, and then we look at some of the best work with a partnership room with WARC, and then we concentrate a lot on what I call the dark arts of winning in the office, which is essentially what I was crap at for the first five years of my career. I couldn't understand how everybody else seemed to know how to do stuff. But my entire working experience had been as a cook in a bingo hall and in Mackey D's, where I was great at the task stuff, terrible at actually understanding the ecosystem. Um, so that is doing really well. So we did a massive outreach campaign uh, we had like two, we've got two cover-ups of Metro, we've got 100 grand's worth of posters from Clear Channel targeting the 20 most challenged cities and towns in Britain. Uh, so it's very much kind of trying to scoop up those who've had, suffered the most COVID economic and educational damage. Um, we've worked with people like Brand Advance and it's going to be an always-on platform and twice a year we take out those with the most potentially have committed the most time to us we put them into employability boot camps then feed them to our partners and that's kind of a really big rewriting at scale with lots of other people plugged Mm. in of this network um we've got that and then we've got brixton as well this summer so that's yeah pretty busy i would say yeah now you mentioned uh that last year was a year of a lot of talking and i think it was a year of reflection as well with black lives matter and um the pandemic but do you feel that we are at a real turning point or do you feel concerned that we are just going to talk about this forever? And, you know, do you see real change happening? I mean, I'd love to say we're, you know, I think we're on a precipice, aren't we? You know, when you look at big events like the Mm. second world war out of the second world war came the NHS and people chose to reset on a fairer, but more equitable future. And obviously at the time, that was viewed as this awful socialist experiment and there was, you know, the government we've got in now, their predecessors actually voted against the NHS. But now we're actually at the same kind of point where we could actually have a reckoning and a, a levelling up that's meaningful, but it's how much do people actually really want to commit to that. Mm. You know, the rungs on the social mobility ladder, the, the gaps have got wider and harder to climb in the last sort of 12 to 14 months. We've seen incredible inequity when it comes to education um i'm hopeful and i'm hopeful because people are investing heavily in change yeah but again it needs to be sustained you know it was as you know 100 years got us to this it's going to take like we need a long-term systemic commitment rather than just a drop otherwise yeah it's going to take a while what are your thoughts, Magnus? What are you seeing? I, I agree with Ali. I think the, the key elements are, and it's the reason why, as I said before, we split ours into the three elements, is you can 
you can end up just playing what I call whack-a-mole. One of the simplest things, and look, we, hands up, I think we've got much more to do mm-hmm. as far as um, the third tranche, which I call progress. But we started with Inspire because it's about the industry as a whole and the enablement bit because we could help. And so that's one of the reasons why we are working uh, with the London Hostel Association. So because at one point it's getting people in, but then they've got to be able to, the hardest bit of working in London is accommodation. So to create and deliver accommodation that's funded. And what we've done is we've worked with a, there are a number of opportunities given to us as far, as far as housing is concerned, but we wanted opportunities where there were buildings and working with the Advertising Association on this so that we could create community, so that other agencies could come into the same buildings. But who couldn't want enough to feel and believe that there'll be an industry where um, we've created these environments and cultures for young people to grow up together in this industry and come into it and feel that they're welcoming it and open and so um, those are the things that we have to do. I think there's the third tranche of like seeing that progress in our, industry, our agencies. I think that we need to do individually in our agencies, but the first two, I think, need more collective action. I think we've done a lot of collective talking, and I think, and I genuinely, I think we also, we've done individual action. Uh, but the real, real smart piece, and that's why each of these initiatives to us are, they're, they're purposefully open. Because they can't be our thing. They need to be, as in our, the publicist groups, they need to be our industry's thing. And that's how we will scale it. Okay, so you're saying there needs to be more cross-industry collaboration on this. Yeah, in the same way as if you looked at, um, if we were talking about any piece of innovation we're looking at, piece of tech, et cetera, the first thing you look at is, can you scale it? Hmm. Um, and, and, if you, and if you think about it, we don't, often we don't give ourselves the same advice we give others. <laughs> and so the question we have to ask ourselves for a lot of the initiatives is, can you scale it? And, and the reason I say that is that I agree with Ali when the, the, the history shows us that it's not the tectonic plates shifting that is the, the enduring thing. It's the, react, it's the human reaction to it. The legacy is what comes next. So from the if Spanish flu and the First World War, you've got the Russian Revolution, Roaring Twenties, League of Nations. I just talked about one element in the UK from the Second World War, but we've got the United Nations, State of Israel. The industry we work in today is a result of it. I always say to anyone, the 21st century just started. And we have the, we have the opportunity now to write what it is. Mm. And this is one of those things that um, we can't let go. I think that's a brilliant point and very well made. I think for me, talking about the collective action, I mean, one of the good things I've seen in the last sort of six to nine months as the markets have come back is the fact that we've now got pretty much partnerships with all the agency groups and like quite a lot of clients as well. So I think as well, I sort of think who's going to do the majority of the work? And I would sort of suggest third parties um, because obviously ad agencies and clients, etc. You've got massive day jobs, to be honest. And this does require a lot of work and a lot of investment. So we've recently created what we've called, very unimaginatively, but does the job, the Alliance, which is um, a collection of social impact projects that come together, including people like Create Not Hate, um, Commercial Break, XYZ, Agent Academy Liverpool, and we've, we've come together and we've been workshopping since before Christmas on how we can best kind of collectively help change, but also use platforms like the Academy where you've got this scalable national platform that lots of different partners, agency partners, media owner partners, client partners already plugged into. And you think about how can you use that as a fulcrum to really continue to really unlock our story amongst people that just haven't heard of this is a potential destination for them. Um, you know, there's nothing more heartwarming. I met some Academy virtual students last week. Do you know what? It's just really nice to hear a non-Southern accent. So rare. You know, we live in a country that's full of people who don't have a Southern accent, mm. but I live in a bubble where we all do. And you realise how little we actually... I mean, obviously, we've got massive challenges around age and ability and lots of other things... But, you know, just even down to how people speak is, yeah, just yeah. not varied enough. Whereas this is supposed to be the people we represent. One of the things that um, sort of drives me is, I, like, I really, really remember when I was first given the role of, of Saatchi London CEO and I was invited to an industry event 
black tie dinner and I arrived and I was invited by my predecessor and I arrived and not surprisingly Robert was late so I got, I just walked in like, all I could see in this room was just literally a sea of black tied wearing men white haired white middle aged men and just me and I, and, and I don't think I'm easily intimidated but literally I saw it turned around because it was just too much you know you sort of just go whoa and, and I and I stood outside and I just did calls outside until I saw a friendly face our industry won't prosper if that continues it won't the reality is I believe genuinely I believe that everyone I talk to wants to change that but but now we just need to be smart about it because I think there's lots of passionate people who need to be passionate and smart together that's such a powerful story I think and that image of you as this leader in the industry also feeling intimidated by some of these structures in the industry. Now, before we wrap up, do you think that there's one thing you could say to the listeners of this is something you can do, you can start to do tomorrow? It, it is such a big, overwhelming problem to fix, but I think a lot of people do want to help and they want to start somewhere. What's even one small thing they could do this week to to get this going i would suggest contacting somebody in the alliance i mean there's so many if you've even got only half an hour of your time once a month there's lots of amazing mentorship programs out there that and that's one way to do something on your own terms as an individual and obviously the next stage up is to advocate and agitate within your workspaces and i think we're at the stage now where there's you know the more vocal we are about change, the more empowered people feel to talk about change where they work. I mean, I agree with Magnus, you know, I'm the more I spend time in people's workspaces, the more I realise how many people do want the change. Um, it's Yeah, but you're right, it just is overwhelming. So I think, you know, working together, working with people who are doing this work every day would be a really nice shortcut to get things done quickly. And I would say, look... Um... As an individual or as an agency, sign up content-wise um, or as a mentor-mentee to the OA because there are already 2,000 people that need you. Let's make, let's get let's get to 10, 20, 50 uh, and beyond. And lastly, it is whether you join what we're doing with the um, London um, Hostel Association, the HA, but the, the accommodation piece to, to do, do what you can to bring that barrier down. Well, thank you so much, Magnus and Ali. Real quick, tell people where can, where can they find the OA and Brooks and Finishing School and Academy? You can find the OA at marcel slash ai.openapprenticeship. Amazingly, Brixton and Finishing School is at www.brixtonfinishingschool.org <laughs> and the Academy is www.the slightly weird spelling adcademy, C-A-D-E-M-Y.org. Or just Google us. We're everywhere on Google at the moment. And yeah, come and chat. We're very good at virtual cups of tea. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Magnus Jarber, Ali Owen, Kate McGee and Brittany Kiefer for joining me on this week's episode. And this episode of the Campaign Podcast was edited by Lindsay Riley. And remember, Campaign Magazine is a website too campaignlive.co.uk we write about the advertising industry and the latest ads if you're a first time listener to the podcast please subscribe leave a review but otherwise we hope you can join us again next week bye bye